0: You're listening to The Unmute Podcast with Myesha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Michael Burroughs. Michael is an assistant professor of philosophy at California State University, Bakersfield, and he also serves as a director of the Kegley Institute of Ethics there. He writes on topics in ethics, education and moral development, and public philosophy. His interest in the latter has led him to serve as the current president of the Philosophy Learning and Teaching Organization, as well as the founding editor of Pre-College Philosophy and Public Practice. In this episode, we talk child development, What it means for children to have agency, holding children responsible, and so much more. Hello, Michael, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. We're we're currently recording this during the pandemic, so in spite of, I'm doing well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So adjusting to these realities. But thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. So let me begin with this question, Michael. How did you get interested in philosophy?
0: Actually, it's a, it's an interesting story, I think, uh, and one that's connected to a lot of the research and work that I do now actually relating to childhood that was not planned, but kind of came together fortuitously. But my first experience with philosophy formally, I'd say, uh, was actually in fifth grade. And it was not a sustained experience. It was uh, a local university professor, uh, Salisbury, Maryland, where I grew up, came to my fifth grade class and gave a a guest lecture on Socrates and civil disobedience. Oh, wow. And I was pretty much like completely struck by that. Like, uh, I, I don't remember a lot about my fifth grade experience. And I remember a lot about that guest lecture. But I remember I was really impacted by it very strongly. And I didn't know what philosophy was. I think I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> right. But I, I kind of knew this is something I really like. I never had another formal philosophy experience for the rest of my academic career until I got to college. But I was a philosophy major day one based on that experience. And actually, that professor was my my undergrad professor and mentor, too. <laughs> really? It's pretty interesting. Wow.
1: And, and what, what school was this?
0: This was St. Francis de Sales, a Catholic school in Salisbury, Maryland.
1: OK, OK. Wow! Wow! And what what did he did you you, you told did you tell him ever? I mean, I assume that you told him about the fifth grade experience. What was what was his response?
0: Oh yeah, no, totally actually. I mean, we talked about it. He thought. I mean, I think he thought it was. I mean, flattering. Uh, his name was Doctor Francis Kane. He, he retired uh, several years back, but uh, I think. I mean, more than anything, he just kind of got a kick out of it. Actually, um, and I think it was something that he hadn't really thought about, but it, it really stuck with me. But we actually have, we still have a very close relationship. So uh, I still talk with him and he was actually responsible for me really kind of going to grad school and everything. So we 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 we, we, st- we stayed connected over the years.
1: So the, the, the research work, the practical work, the applied work that you do is far. I'm not going to say far, far, because, hey, we're never too far from Socrates. But it's not about Socrates and civil disobedience, Um, the domain that you one of the domains that you seem to be working in is in the domain of children and child development, et cetera, et cetera. How did you get into that room?
0: So, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things like I think about just for me in life, um, I found myself passionate about something and throwing myself into something for years at a time. And then I gradually, it's not like it's completely, um, uh, I'm doing it completely with a lack of reflection, but often I kind of start to think about, okay, why am I doing this? What is it about this that I like so much? And then I start to kind of theorize about it more. So it's kind of like this idea of, you know, that Paulo Freire introduces about praxis, right? Kind of theory right. and action combined. And um, I, before I went to grad school, I taught high school for five years. And okay. uh, I, taught, I taught high school uh, two different schools. And I I introduced philosophy programs at both of those schools, because in the United States, philosophy programs, although They've grown quite a bit, um, are still relatively underrepresented in curricula. And it was really through teaching high schoolers philosophy that led me to grad school. And I, when I got to grad school, I was fully immersed in my grad studies, loving that, but I was really missing working with youth. And I, I founded a, an outreach program at the University of Memphis called Philosophical Horizons that did philosophy in Memphis City schools for K-12 students. And that program grew and we got a major grant. It, it actually still exists today. That, that work increasingly, I guess the best way to say it is I was doing work in classrooms with, you know, everything from kindergartners to high schoolers, right, as a grad student. And at the same time, I was reading deeply in history of philosophy. And I started noticing all these discussions of childhood that were not really discussed a lot in the secondary literature, but that were present in Aristotle, Plato, Kant, mm-hmm. Rousseau, a lot, all of them were concerned with childhood in some regard. And they were concerned in a very specific way. And so I, I started getting really interested in like the practical experiences I was having philosophically with children in classrooms and how that was running up against the philosophical treatments of childhood I was seeing in some of the most important canonical literature we have in our discipline. So okay. that, that's really kind of where the, the theorization of the work on childhood really began for me.
1: Okay, so let's let's talk about that. So in in moral philosophy, we are we're very much concerned with agency, even the way that we write. We don't say person, we say moral agent. And even in popular parlance and ordinary language, agency has become part of our language. Can you explain exactly what is agency and why is it important to consider when we do ethics, moral philosophy? And I would even say social political philosophy as well.
0: Yeah so yeah it's a great question and a challenging one i mean i think i think of agency kind of i guess maybe two fundamental ways i mean one kind of maybe kind of for uh an initial definition something like you know intentional meaningful action in the world has something to do with what we mean by agency being able to act with intent um with understanding but tied to that are also often types discussions about conditions of agency right so What it means to be an agent. And that, when we're having those conversations, we're in many cases talking about different, for example, different capacities that ground our intentional action. So being rational, being autonomous, being competent, right? These kinds of things. So when we're talking about agency and who is an agent, we're both describing something about a person and a certain type of competency or capacity. But I think also what's interesting about agency is that it's also a normative judgment, right? I mean, we can't just easily assess, you know, des- descriptively who is an agent or not in all these different cases. And we know historically that agency can also be used to disenfranchise certain groups of people, right? And so I think there's both kind of these descriptive aspects of it, but it's also closely related to normative, in some cases, pejorative judgments that are made about certain groups of people in the world and their political or moral agency.
1: You know in your work that there are traditional and development views of agency, and you note know that what these two have in common is that they, and these are your words, that they both, quote, undermine our practices of holding children responsible in the context of our common interactions, end quote. How exactly do they do this?
0: So this is, this is a, yeah, something I've been thinking about recently. I've been trying to puzzle through, you know, I mean, for me, childhood is kind of this, what I call like this this wellspring concept. It kind of Part of what I find, and I'll I'll get to your question directly, but part of what I find really interesting and fascinating about childhood is it kind of connects us back to everything. You know, I think a lot of philosophers, they're historically anyway, their discussions of agency start with children because, you know, whether we're talking about developmental psychologists or the work of Aristotle and Plato, the type of agency that we're looking to develop has to start in childhood, right? So we need to think about childhood first, and the way that that's been understood, and this gets to your question, the way that certain views. Underdetermine how we think about agency in childhood or more generally is this. So, the traditional view of agency that I introduce in some of my recent work is this view that uh, agency is tied to the possession or lack of possession of certain capacities. So, being rational, being autonomous, having self control, and things like that, right? So, it's kind of like if you have these capacities, you are therefore recognized as an agent. And generally, those, those capacities are supposed to come online at a certain age. And the, the age that's supposed to be varies a lot, but that's the basic view. Now, traditionally, speaking of children, right now, I mean, you can look at Aristotle, Plato, Kant, uh, Rousseau, Locke, and many others, Rawls. Young children, especially, are not agents by and large, right, because they, don't, they, they are lacking various capacities that are essential to being an agent. The developmental view that I've talked about is aligned with, uh, let's say, the past uh, 40 years of about developmental psychology scholarship. And that scholarship, particularly certain areas of that scholarship, have really pushed back against traditional views of childhood development, where actually children at a very young age do possess certain capacities for, for moral judgment, moral reasoning, uh, a theory of mind, being able to understand that others have emotions and experiences and conceptions that are distinct from their own and things like that things that on the traditional view are important for being an agent right so we have this tension but the, the problem even with that kind of say, more progressive view is that and what, what i argue is that when it comes to thinking about any child that we're interacting interacting with on a practical basis when we're trying to make a responsibility assessment unless we're a an expert and we're spending lots of time with that child we don't have a you know, a magic glass to be able to see what capacities a child has or not. I mean, there's, there's tremendous developmental diversity in childhood, right? So you can have, say, okay, this stage means eight-year-olds generally have this type of rational capacity or empathic capacity, but actual eight-year-olds, there's going to be great diversity within even a single classroom on where they are in terms of their ability to empathize or to understand the experiences of another or to reason through a problem, right? Right. So when we try and locate agency and capacities, we come up against this issue of, well, how do we actually assess when children have the capacities in question? There's not a really easy way to do that. The the other reason that's challenging, right, is because there's a lot of prejudice that we carry towards children like other social groups, right? So, for example, on the one hand, we have narratives about childhood since at least the romantic period of childhood innocence. And these are narratives that are basically tied to children not being competent, right? Not being knowing, not being intentful, being pure. So they kind of lead to like a devaluation of like the agency capacities that we think children might have. At the same time, there's lots of empirical evidence that shows children of color, particularly Black children, are assessed as more culpable, more intentional in their actions than, say, white children for similar actions, particularly in criminal justice contexts. So what I've tried to show in some recent work, recent work is that we need to really be, bring some epistemic humility to our assessments of when children are or are not agents on a capacities-based view, because we carry social perceptions and prejudicial conceptions towards children that can really distort our judgments and our practical interactions with children. And even aside from that, you know, even on the best of days, it's pretty hard to just be able to nail down. And make a distinctive judgment about somebody having capacities that make them an agent or not. I mean, just making that judgment is not as easy as we sometimes assume it to be. So th- those are some of the ways that if we accept the capacities based view, that by itself doesn't do enough for us in our practical interactions with children to make accurate agency attributions.
1: Yeah, it's, it's making me think here, and I want to I stick with, with talking about children for this conversation, but it made me think about adults. And I, and I wonder... It seems that if, if, uh, how we're treating agency in relationship to adults, particularly the problems that you find with that. And in some ways I'm thinking, well, we don't do this with adults because we think that, hey, once a certain age is reached, all the capacities are supposed to be developed at some point. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. At least that's an assumption. It is
0: an assumption. Yeah. And
1: so I, I wonder, do you think we should apply kind of what you're hinting at towards towards adults as well?
0: Yeah. I mean, well, here's the here's the way that I think Here's kind of a second piece of this puzzle that I think definitely does relate to adults. And you can let me know if this isn't fully getting at your concern of what you're raising. But the other issue with the capacities based view that I think relates to adults as much as children, although we can think of children as maybe a special case of this, is that I'm, I'm really influenced by um, a lot of feminist scholars who have introduced relational conceptions of autonomy and agency, for example. And I, I'm, I'm really convinced, um, and I'll give you an example of this, too. That another reason why it's a mistake to look at agency in a, a capacities based way, in the way that tr- the traditional view that I'm locating does, is that when we think of agency in terms of ability, like in intentional, meaningful action in the world, for example, the definition I started out with, our ability to act in meaningful ways in the world is not solely determined by ourselves, right? Like our ability to do that is directly influenced, aided, or hindered by significant others. In our lives, right? Like how we're treated and how we're regarded. And that that is very true for adults as well, right? Like when you are regarded in a certain way, when you are given opportunities, when you are supported, when you are mentored, as opposed to the opposite of those things, it direct, can directly impact your agential abilities, right? To act in the world. Children, maybe even distinctly so, because they are they are uniquely developing, right, in certain ways. And so I think there's some really there's some really formative experiences that especially young children are going through that can really be helped or hindered by loving, supportive relationships or the lack of them, right? Um, right. And I think, or the experience of uh, racial prejudice or sexism, or, or not, right? A more egalitarian treatment. Like the, these sorts of things can really impact how we see ourselves and therefore our agency in the world. So a strict view of you have the capacity or you don't doesn't account for that. And I think the relational view is much more, much more realistic. And I think, Definitely relates to the adult case too, so that's that's one thought I have. But is that is that getting to kind of what you were?
1: No, no, that's 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 right on. I could I couldn't help but think about the little bit of science that I know, and as I was reading your work, I was I was thinking about how people often cite scientific evidence that suggests that you know parts of our brains that's responsible for rationality is not fully developed until you know a little bit after our teenage years. And if yeah. that's the case, it seems like this seems to be evidence of how much or how little young people are developed. But it seems that you think the science aside, that there are barriers to truly knowing how developed children are. And so my question is twofold: Is the science an objection to your view, or how does it even fit into your view? If you take it, you know, if you take it seriously, or you think it's relevant. And number two, what are the barriers to knowing how developed children are?
0: Yeah. So I think the science. I mean. Uh, For me, I don't I don't take it as a as an objection to the view, just because I think I think my claim is not it's definitely not trying to run roughshod over the science. Right. So I would say, I mean, and so the literature on the prefrontal cortex development shows up, for example, in a series of relatively recent Supreme Court cases um, in the 2000s, uh, I think 2005, 2012. uh, There was a number of cases that were specifically addressing juvenile culpability? Uh, Was it constitutional to have former juvenile offenders be subject to the death penalty? Was it constitutional for them to be subject to mandatory life imprisonment for certain crimes? And all those were actually, those those penalties were rolled back because of, in part, the scientific literature that children uh, are not fully developed rationally in terms of the prefrontal cortex. And that by and large, children are say, more impulsive, less able to understand consequences and things like that. That literature, though, it's, it's something that I think should we should use to temper our ideas about punishment and also understanding the possibilities for rehabilitation that are maybe distinctive to uniquely developing children and juveniles. But I don't think it's certainly not enough to say, well, therefore, no children are responsible for anything they do. I mean, the prefrontal cortex, I mean, A, because we, start, we hold children responsible all the time. I mean, maybe we could say all those are mistaken, but I mean, I think we need to talk about contextually what we mean and what cases of responsibility we're interested in. When children, you know, a, a 15-year-old steals something, we're not going to say, uh, well, okay, obviously you didn't. Have, you had no sense of what you were doing because your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. We say, okay, like you probably had some sense, but maybe you're not fully cognizant of all the consequences of your action or something, right? So it's something that should temper how we, how we perform our responsibility assessments, but the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed according to the literature, right, till the age of 25. I mean, it would it'd be a pretty massive revision of our responsibility attributing practices if we use that solely to ter- determine when we hold someone responsible or not. The, the point I want to point out here too is that the scientific literature, again, kind of brings us back to the same view that we were talking about before, that responsibility is a capacity that's inside of a person. It's kind of tied to whether they have it or not. Rationality, autonomy, and prefrontal cortex, these things are part of the puzzle for sure. Like, you know, we can't hold rocks responsible because they don't have any capacities that would be relevant, but people do in various different stages and kinds, right? So, but I think I want to make us think more about a relational view of holding responsible. And so, An example I use in a a, a recent paper called Navigating the Penumbra, it's in the Southern Journal of Philosophy, is is from people I've learned from quite a bit, right? And that's classroom teachers. And a method that good classroom teachers in early childhood classrooms often use is, let's say a child throws a toy across the room and hits another child and hurts that child. That teacher does not know, factually speaking, whether that child understood all the consequences of her action or not, right? Maybe she did, maybe she doesn't. We don't don't know that, literally speaking, in any given case. And let's say she probably didn't think about through all the potential things that could come from that. The teacher still holds her responsible, right? She still says that's something that you shouldn't do, but she does a method we call scaffolding, right? Where she, she basically has a conversation with the student about, what did you just do? Why did you do it? What was the result of you doing that? And it's basically kind of scaffolding in the child's understanding while holding responsible. So it's like the supportive method, right? That's way different than holding responsible by screaming at a child or punishing them harshly, you know, abusing them, right? I mean, there are lots of different ways we can hold responsible and punish. Some are really, really horrific. Some are supportive and draw out the agency that children do possess in a really, really positive supportive way. Um, and so I think we're not assuming that the child understands everything. We're assuming some baseline level of awareness, but we're we're holding responsible in a way that is scaffolding in values and norms that we think are important in this case in the classroom environment, like respect your peers, don't harm others. And I think that's a holding responsible we do all the time and we we need to do in order to try and, you know, educate children and you know, help them understand their world. You know,
1: so you were you were talking about this relational view and and, and holding accountable, um, but you also say there's barriers to really knowing. Yes, how developed a child is. So if I am that teacher and I'm trying to hold accountable, or I am that theorist who's trying to figure these things out, well, what what are the barriers to to, to truly knowing?
0: So I think I think there's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a couple of things. So one um one one quote that comes to mind for me, and I'm, I'm not I'm just going to paraphrase it here, but there's actually two quotes, right, that I'm going to paraphrase here. One's from P.F. Strawson and one is from Jean Piaget. And so P.F. Strawson in Freedom of Resentment has this actually, this quote that actually really, I really grappled with for a long time. I was just so fascinated by it, where he, he talks about children as being a penumbra. And I, when I first saw that quote, I was like, what the hell is a penumbra? Because I never <laughs> liked that so I, I cons- so I consulted. It's an SAT word. Right. I consulted my trusted dictionary. <laughs> and I found out that a penumbra is this, this region between shadow and light that, that occurs during an eclipse. So it's not quite light. It's not quite shadow. It's like this murky area in between. It's kind of a little bit of both. And Strawson was struggling in Freedom of when he saw about reactive attitudes, right? Like whether children should be subject to them or not. The struggle he was having is like, he's basically, says, children are kind of agents and they're kind of not. Like they... They're both kind of like subject to reactive attitudes, and yet at the same time, they're kind of not, you know, re- reasonably subject to those attitudes. He's, he kind of grappled with that, right? He's kind of this middle ground. And the second paraphrase was, is from Piaget, who's like the father of stage theory, right? Like the person who gives us the language of children develop at these stages and at this mm-hmm. age there, right? And he has this great quote from The Moral Judgment of the Child, which is not cited very often, but is an important one. Where he says stages are basically analytical distinctions we make for ease of understanding. But with, with, within those stages is an infinitely complicated detail within each child. So basically saying is we use stage theory to make to understand our world and understand. Our children. We have to make sense of our world and do that, right? There's some truth to that, but they are generalizations. Like individual children uh, can be well beyond a given stage or well within it, or there's there's extreme developmental diversity, right? So the challenges we have are both with our normative concepts for Strawson, like, how should we treat children? Like, they have some competency, but like, do they fully understand? Like, should they be fully subject to resentment or blame or, for that matter, praise? And with, with Piaget, he's saying, to really know, we have to dig deep on a given child. We can't rely on stage theory alone. And that's from the father of stage theory, Right. So, so there's real challenges empirically, and there's challenges normatively. And an interesting way that I thought about this, Maisha, was a couple different examples. And here, here's here here's here's two of them. If we take the root of the traditional view and we say it seems completely irresponsible to hold children responsible for their actions, right? Okay, that gets us out of a bind when we're dealing with say. Children who murder other children, which happens more frequently than people realize, there's actually a tremendous. There's, I mean, it's disturbing literature, but I was reading quite a bit of it when I was working on this paper because I was interested in how societies and legal systems deal with, say, young children who assault or murder other young children, um, because it raises questions of responsibility, right? In the most extreme cases, the issue is we can say, okay, they're not responsible because they don't know what they're doing. Say a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old who takes another child's life or performs abuse. But then what do we do in the positive cases? Like what do we do with children in the American civil rights movement who participated in the, the children's miracle, who marched in Birmingham and went to jail and who Dr. King said were marching for their beliefs? Did they not know what they're doing? I mean, sure. you know what I mean? So it's like we, we have this double standard in some cases and that's where the problem started for me. Where I was like, okay, there has to be more to responsibility than just pointing to capacities. Because it seems like we don't really have an accurate way of assessing those. And we tend to discount them when children are doing bad things, but praising children when they're doing good things is that they are responsible for their actions, which is not, not, not consistent, right? right? So all of those types, th- that example made me think, okay, so, so what are other ways of understanding this? And, and part of that's where it's led me back to this relational view. I mean, the Hitler Youth, I think is a good example of, in many cases, children being brainwashed, right? by a totalitarian regime to act in a certain way and to believe a certain thing, uh, to have a certain worldview. And so I think maybe that does impact how we think about children's culpability and the actions in those cases. I think there's a different political structure and a different type of education happening, of course, in the American civil rights movement, right? That maybe there's, that, that makes us think differently about children's agency in that situation. But I think part of what I'm pointing to here is, and trying to not get overly complicated, even though it's a very difficult topic, is I think we really have to look contextually. We have to look at the relationship, we have to look at the child, and we have to look at the situation to really assess responsibility when it comes to children. We have to make generalizations. We can't escape that. I think we always need to be aware of and carry a certain type of epistemic humility with our interactions with children, and not just say, oh, this child's at this stage, so I know she's capable of this, or she isn't. I I think that's a real mistake, and I think a lot of people do that.
1: It seems like what you what you've kind of hinted at is that there are ways in which we can hold children responsible. But I want you to talk a little bit more about reasons why we should hold children responsible.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah. So here's one thing. So, I mean, one way I think about this is and this is kind of building off of the epistemic humility point where we we, let's just say we we don't know any given case where a child stands capacities wise. I think there are really important forward-looking reasons to hold children responsible. For one, treating someone like a person who matters in part involves holding them responsible. It doesn't mean we hold them responsible always in the same way and uniformly across all situations. But if we treat somebody as if they are not, they lack all responsibility for their actions, we're in effect saying they're not a full person. And I think I think that can be detrimental. I say, another way of saying this is I think children are part of our moral communities and should be treated as if they are, as if the things they think and say matter. Um, they have a bearing on our world and they should have a bearing on our actions and they can contribute to important conversations we have about problems in our communities. None of that makes sense if we don't hold children responsible for what they say on some level, right? On some level. We can determine about what that actually looks like in practice, but I think that's, that's one reason. The other is that Holding responsible in a forward-looking way is part of how we educate children about values and norms that are important in our society. If we don't hold responsible on, in some form or fashion, then there's not really a good way, right, um, or at least that's one good way to show children, hey, this is something that is important for us to do. This is something that maybe we should not do, like abusive behavior or a behavior that's empathic towards others. We want to say praise that. That, that involves an act of responsibility, right? Or saying you shouldn't do that, right? And here's why. Holding responsible in a way that centers, you know, problematic activity. So those are reasons, forward-looking reasons, why holding responsible is really important developmentally for children to like understand. And also at the same time, to recognize the intentions and values that they already have. Because I think the background of all of this, especially with the history of philosophy, but also the history of developmental psychology, is massively underestimating the complexity of children's moral and social lives, really underestimating that. And I think when you spend a lot of time with children, as I have, in lots of different contexts and lots of different work, you realize the complexity of their concerns. And one of the things that I think we often get wrong, and there's a lot of really fascinating studies and also just narratives about this, are sometimes, you know, when we, we, this goes back to the relational point too. We, we don't realize children's agency because of the method we use to assess that agency, and an example that i I use sometimes something that's kind of funny I use it with my students, but it always sticks with me is that you know I do a lot of philosophy work with children right in classrooms uh, I've been doing that for you know well over a decade and if I go into a classroom and I say I want to talk about friendship this Aristotelian concept right and I go in there and i bring up a PowerPoint on Aristotle and we, you know, and I'm with the first graders and I'm giving them a paragraph from the Nick ethics to read, that's going to go well for maybe 10 seconds. And then I'm (laughs) right. i be rolling around the the floor and not giving a damn about what I say. I'm like, Oh my God, these kids don't, no philosophical ability. Um, (laughs) Right. Okay. If I go in there and I write a short story about a friendship in a classroom, right, between two kids who are in first grade, and they're having a conflict about who's going to get to play with a toy in the classroom that day, and they're trying to figure it out, we're going to have a really robust conversation about friendship in that same classroom with those same kids. It's the same kids, just the method, right, has changed. And when the type of relationship, the type of method of communication that's being used changes, the agency changes too. And I think that's that's something that, again, we need to be really humble about our assessments of agency and factor into those. Well, how are we coming at children when we're assessing these? Lawrence Kohlberg infamously used these highly abstract thought experiments to talk with kids about moral agency and action. And kids weren't, that's not how young kids think, right? It's a completely different type of conversation if you do what like Robert Coles did with children of the American Civil Rights Movement, where he said, I'm not gonna use Kohlbergian assessments. I'm gonna get out a piece of paper and ask them to draw their concerns, draw their daily activity, draw what's on your mind today, and let's talk about that. And through that method, right, he had these amazing conversations with these kids, and he learned a lot about their thoughts and their experiences, what was impacting them. So I think that, that's a point that I keep in mind, too, when we think about what it means, what the abilities that children possess, but also realizing our limitations and understanding that if we don't come in the right way to those interactions.
1: You've given some, some school examples, and even from your own experience as a, as a teacher, and, and I'm wondering what implications do your view have for what we do in schools? I mean, uh, children are in schools much more than they are at, at home. I don't know the math on that, but that's my guesstimation and they face so many interactions, uh, particularly from a, a variety of adults. And there's ways in which I, this can go very wrong, and which ways in which you describe it, and in ways in which it can go right. So given what you have to say, given what you could argue, if you can go back to the classroom, talk to principals, talk to teachers, and tell them your view about agency, how, how can that help them do what they do?
0: So it's, it's a great question. And actually, uh, one that I thought about quite a bit. I mean, I, I just just the, the simplest aspect of it is, you know, so there's this, this institute that I run every summer uh, with some colleagues from the teacher education department at CSU Bakersfield called the SEED Institute. It stands for Social Emotional Ethics and Democratic Education. And the, the biggest thing we talk about with teachers is making the classroom more collaborative, um, giving children more of a purchase and a stake in what's happening and more of a voice in what's happening. There's a couple of reasons for this. One is a practical reason when, when children, I mean, children are no different than, you know, college or graduate students in this regard. I mean, I think that when you have a stake in what's happening, you're more interested in what's happening. You know, when you're included in the conversation, it's clear that your view matters. It's, it's, it's being factored into what you're learning on some level. You are more interested in what you're learning as opposed to the banking model. You're going to learn this. Don't ask me why, just because I said so. Right. Secondly, when children are engaged as active problem solvers, as people who have something to say in the classroom, as, say, in a more dialogue-based education as opposed to a more rote kind of lecture-based education, that also increases their, their practice with being agents, right? With speaking up, with making decisions, with creative problem solving. I mean, this is something that comes straight out of you know, John Dewey, Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks, you know, just this idea of engaging students as real people who have real concerns that have a bearing on the education they're receiving in the classroom. A really, to take this kind of down even further, kind of really practical, I mean, one of the things that came up, has come up for student uh, teachers in our region, in big field, is they're all mandated to do social emotional learning in the classroom, you know, deal with issues of emotions and relationships and responsibility. And the biggest shift that we've, we've worked with teachers on that Honestly, it has been really successful. Is not treating everything like a moral, like, okay, kids, let me tell you why it's important to be responsible. Let me tell you what it means to be empathic. Let me tell you what it means to be moral, all these things. Instead, create a dialogue. What does it mean to be empathic? Like, have the kids weigh in on that. Have a conversation about it. You can have upshots and lessons, but include the children as problem solvers, right? And give them a stake in the problem at hand. I think when you do that, it kind of ties back to all those things I'm talking about. And the way we've, had it, we've, had, we've done that is have teachers with children write short stories about issues that are rising in their classroom that are open-ended and don't have a resolution, and then have the children try and come up with solutions. What, how should we solve this problem in the classroom? Problematize it. Think about potential solutions. And let's come back and work on those together. And I think it's just kind of trying to put children in a more agential foot in the classroom. And I think those things pay real dividends alongside other good pedagogical practices for children.
1: So I, I've asked you a question in a domain in which you have experience, and, and, now, and now I'm going to challenge you to, to kind of take that domain, apply the same lessons from that domain into a very different domain in which you may not have experience. So I, I wonder then, how might we take those, those same lessons that you, know, you said has implications in the schools? How can we take those same lessons and number one, raising children? And you can just throw some things out. I mean, not like as if, as if you, you are the child psychologist or anything like that. But but I, I I can imagine there's lots of parents that are also listening to this that may find some benefit. So how might we take those same lessons in schools and our approach in raising children? And I also wonder how would we take those same lessons in our juvenile justice system?
0: Yeah, so it's a good question. So, I mean, the with children, you know, say as parents and or uncles and aunts or whatever we are, brothers, sisters, I mean, I think... There's a couple of things. I mean, one is, is, is something that obviously uh, these are really formative relationships in the home, right? They're kind of probably some of the most formative relationships that children have. So when we talked about before about the way that supportive relationships can help or hinder agency. Well, one of the most important relationships that does that well or poorly is the parent-child relationship or, you know, the, the sibling relationship. These kind of really, so I think keeping that in mind, right, is, is important, but Really, practically speaking, and this kind of comes from some some work that I've I've talked about with my colleagues and, and a couple of organizations that I work with, but also my colleague Janna Morlone, who we wrote a book together on doing philosophy in schools. And don't think that you need to have all the answers. I think one of the things that's really simple with with the, that people, adults, I think, who well-intentioned adults, when children ask questions, they're not always interested actually in you having a definitive answer. I think I think actually. Sometimes they're really interested in you just thinking with them, with you, with you saying, well, I mean, well, why do you, why are you interested in that? What do you think? What would it mean if this was the case? Ask questions back, have a conversation. Like, I think that's one of the the most powerful things that I've seen routinely in working with kids. And I think it translates also to being an uncle or a parent or whatever it might be, is just taking their questions and ideas seriously, first of all. And not feeling like you need to answer all of them. Like when you can, great. I mean, you don't want to like just sow conditions of uncertainty at all times. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying get philosophical because children are, I mean, fantastic philosophers in the sense that they question everything and they are totally down to engage in questioning. You don't need to like pry it out of them. It's like they want to do it. So I think, I think kind of engaging in conversations a bit more with that spirit would be one thing I would really recommend. And the other good good news I would note is just, there's a ton of good resources out there for for thinking through, like, Philosophical Conversations with Children. Jana Morlone's, The Philosophical Child is an example. There's a ton of books, like, good thought experiment books. The website of the Philosophy, Learning, and Teaching Organization, or PLATO as the acronym, has resources. There's all kinds of cool stuff that parents could tap into, too.
1: And how about for those who work in the juvenile justice system in which they're dealing with children in very different ways, <laughs> very different yeah. contexts uh, than parents per se?
0: Two thoughts that come to mind. One comes from a paper that I published um, with Deb Tolson in 2016 in Episteme. Uh, it's called Learning to Listen, Epistemic Injustice in the Child. And that was specifically on children in forensic and criminal justice contexts. And specifically what we were writing on. This is, this is the first point, And it kind of it ties back to what I was talking about with the classroom example of like, using Aristotle with kids versus like a children's book or like a story, right? There was a tremendous amount of literature on children as being uh, not competent testifiers, uh, lacking memory, lacking reliability, not rational, right? The part of the problem of those assessments is, again, how is the interview being done? When is it being done? How are the questions being asked? Is the child being treated in a compassionate way? Courtroom contexts are extremely nerve-wracking, even for adults. So imagine how it is for an eight-year-old. And so part of, the, part of what we think about here is be conscious about the environment, the type of questions you're asking, and the ways you're coming at a child in a forensic context, and what's going to lead you to be able to have more or less positive epistemic interactions. And we wrote about that specifically in the paper. That's one upshot, right? Is again, that relational aspect. The second aspect is about, okay, for me, and this is actually something I'm, I'm thinking about now, but I haven't written on it yet, but I think it's kind of the next step for me is, okay, is the question of punishment. When we talk about responsibility, I mean, punishment is a separate issue from responsibility. It's related, but it's it's a distinct issue. We can think about somebody as culpable and still think separately about what punishment is merited based on that culpability. Can we think of, part of the problem with the juvenile justice system, right, is, when, is because it, it can leave children worse off when they were coming into the system because of the types of punishment that they're subject to, or being isolated, or being put in juvenile detention centers that some are pretty rough places, right? And can we we develop ways of rehabilitating that are supportive and scaffolding as opposed to tearing down and diminishing? And that's an idealistic idea, but I think it's definitely something that's needed if we're gonna have a juvenile justice system, right? If children are gonna be in the court system, which they are, that's not going away. So how do we deal with children in a way that scaffolds in understanding of, of both empathy, but also understanding of what went wrong, how they can, be, how they can choose better and, and, and become, you know, flourishing people going forward. And what that looks like in any, in any individual instance, there's good examples of it out there. There's really compassionate judges and attorneys and advocates who do these types of things for, for children. But it's not standardized. It's really different from state to state and from district to district. So I think paying attention to that would be one upshot of what I'm talking about here.
1: So in addition to being an assistant professor, you are also a director of an ethics institute. Can you, a lot of us may be familiar with the first job, which is an assistant professor, but can you describe to us the the latter job? That is being a director of an ethics institute. And could you also describe the kinds of work that, that you and your center do?
0: Yes. So thank you. As I, I direct the Kegley Institute of Ethics, which has been around since 1986, based out of CSU Bakersfield. Being an ethics institute director of the kind of, of institute that I, that I run is it's basically like running, a, it's like running a nonprofit. So it is everything from fundraising and maintaining an annual budget to strategic planning to supervising staff. Uh, to developing initiatives and programs it's it 's really wide ranging in terms of the responsibilities the thing that 's really cool about the work i mean for me, what I love about the work I do and particularly at the kegel Institute is we have a mission that 's both on campus and in the community so and one of the great things about ethics is that it touches everybody I mean one of the things I like to say and i I, I kinda I do a workshop or a public talk just about every week with different community groups or students or faculty, all centering around ethics in some way. And the thing is, one of the things I often talk about is that you don't need a PhD in ethics or study ethics your whole life to face ethical challenges. Everybody right. faces them. Tell challenges. me about <laughs> it. Yeah, right? right. So it's like you the cool thing about ethics is you have a starting point with everybody, whether it's a five-year-old or an 80-year-old, right? And I think that kind of common ground is, is really fascinating. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of programs that we ran in the last year. So one of the things that we really try and do as an institute is be responsive to our community. And that includes the campus and the greater Bakersfield community. And we are, we are a resource for people in local businesses, local schools, local nonprofits. It's really diverse. We, we have done in the past 12 months uh, ethical leadership training for the Bakersfield Police Department, a four-part series on ethical leadership for all Bakersfield PD sergeants. We hosted a lecture with Dr. Angela Davis on the prison industrial complex because we have over a dozen prisons in our region. We work a lot with formerly incarcerated students on their transition to university life. We held a community conversation that was open to community members, students, faculty, and staff on homelessness in Bakersfield and Southern California, in which we had two formerly homeless, now nonprofit leaders, and a local Bakersfield Homeless Center director come talk about responses to homelessness and ways the community can get involved, and then have an hour-long open dialogue with our community about that. These are way different topics, right? Homelessness, policing, prison. I could go on and on about the different types of programs we run. They all connect with ethics. They all connect with what it means to live in an ethical community, how to respond to others, how to serve others. And so part of what we try and do is both create programs and serve as a hub for collaborations and the creative work of others who want to do ethically relevant work whether that's research or developing a mentoring program or working with students, uh, lots of different ways. So we both take the lead on several programs, but we also have things like a faculty fellowship program, a student fellowship program, a co-sponsorship program, where we sponsor the work of other people on our campus and in our community trying to do work related to ethics. And we take a really broad view of that to be as inclusive and interdisciplinary as possible. And I'll just say, I mean, you know, I, I, I worked at Ethics Institutes at UNC Chapel Hill and Penn State before coming here. Those were wonderful experiences, like super formative for me. The Rock Institute, I was assistant director and associate director there. That was like an amazing four years for me. I think one thing that's really distinctive here is like, I, you know, we, we just have a very blurred line between the campus and the community. We're, there's not a ton of universities in our region. And so we really have, at a lot of our events, up to 50% of the people in the audience aren't CSUB students or faculty. They're community members. I never experienced that at any other university I was at. It's really distinctive.
1: I mean, one of the reasons why I asked, I mean, there's several reasons why I asked that question, but one of the reasons is pretty biased. I mean, I had the opportunity to uh, have a fellowship for a year at Ethics Institute, and I was able to see the value that that being a part of that institute was able to bring to my own life and also to the surrounding uh, intellectual community. And mind you, that was a very different context. It it was Harvard, uh, so quite different kind of uh, community as you know Cambridge in comparison to Bakersfield and but I've also had the opportunity I mean I've come to several universities who also have ethics institute and I, I feel like it's a, it's I'm not going to say it's a secret but to me it's a hidden secret of, of the the value that these ethics institutes brings not only to scholars but also to the community at large and so I, I just think it's important that if, if people don't know <laughs> then they should know that that does indeed exist that those uh, programs bring value to the community college community and also surrounding community. And they also also need need support. So I, I'm, I'm pretty I'm very appreciative for the work that you're doing. I mean, I, I told you, I think the last time we were together, I was like, every time I hear about what you're doing, I always feel like I'm not doing anything because I just find that that well, a lot of people don't know a lot a lot of the work that is that is being done at, at those at those places. And I really, really applaud you. Um, and that leads me to my to my next question as far as in regards to the work that you do, because you not only work at the Ethics Institute and but you also direct some organizations and also some public philosophy journals. And I want to kind of talk about this. This seems like a very different life from what people traditionally may have imagined a philosopher or a professor to life to be like. And so I noticed that there are many people I know when I was in grad school, there were several people who says, hey, I'm in grad school to get a PhD because I want to teach. And then there was a few outliers. I mean, a couple of them. The basis is I know I don't want to teach. And so they were they were open to explore other options outside of that. And it seems as as you're discussing the Ethics Institute, I see that as an alternative. So I I wonder what you think about this. There are many people who think the following. If you want to be a philosopher, you must teach college students and write papers and books for other philosophy professors. And a few sentences convince me of how false that statement is to you. (laughs) And and then in addition to the Ethics Institute work that you were talking about, can you give us some alternatives? To that kind of thinking?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess, I mean, I, the way I think about it is, I think maybe we kind of all in grad school and kind of maybe go through that phase. where although I don't know, I don't, I don't think I really, I mean, I, I, to some degree, I probably went through that phase of thinking, you know, the kind of what is the real philosophy, right? But I, I guess the way I think about it is being a university professor, being a professional philosopher is one important, great way to do philosophy, but it's just one, right? And philosophy is part of the human condition nobody has ownership over that right and i mean let's talk let's go back to socrates right i mean socrates was well, he wasn't teaching at a university he was he was sure as hell doing philosophy
1: right <laughs> so it's like right.
0: i mean i think we we if you want to be bold actually we might say that being a university I, don't quote me on this or quote me whatever <laughs> Well, you,
1: you are quoted so we're recording quoted,
0: this michael <laughs> that's true i'm being recorded so that's you might even say it's a deficient mode of doing philosophy in some ways. I mean, being a professional philosopher in certain aspects, because of the limitations to it, right? Now, I, I am a college professor. I, I I love the work I do, including in in the traditional ways, right? That that work happens, but there are so many rich opportunities for philosophical interaction and engagement with really just about anybody outside of the university. That to me, it just it, it just seems silly or disingenuous, right? To think that. Only professional philosophers do philosophy. And I just think there's just a, a, a tremendous amount of empirical evidence of people doing philosophy that just pushes back against that. And, I, and for me, I just, I've increasingly become interested as my career has grown in the ways that philosophy connects to people's lives in diverse and really fascinating ways. And again, whether that's a student that I'm working with in a prison or students in a local first grade classroom. I mean, for me, I've seen the power of dialogue and around philosophical concepts and how powerful that can be in both of those contexts and in many more. And to me, that just shows that philosophy is not owned by our discipline. Our discipline is just part of what it means to do
1: philosophy. Well, Michael, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot.
0: Thank you. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.